Welcome to Our Kids, Our Schools, your compass in the world of local education hosted by Alexis Morgan, an experienced guide and advocate. This space offers insights designed to serve parents, teachers, administrators, school board members, and community stakeholders. Every episode is designed to equip you with the knowledge and tools to be an active participant. This podcast isn't just a dialogue. It's a movement, a movement that encourages collaboration to foster a thriving school community because together we can, we will make a difference. Hey, Carter, welcome to my podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's awesome. I love having you here. This is special to me because you are my oldest child. You just graduated from high school last year. Happy New Year, by the way. Yeah, I know. It's 2024, which is weird. That's like I graduated almost a year ago now. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to have you on the podcast because at Our Kids, Our Schools, we're all about understanding our school community and an important part of our school community are teenagers, the kids who are in middle school and high school. And since you just finished... I thought it'd be a great opportunity to hear from you some of your experiences and some of your insights about what that experience was like for you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. So we're just going to jump in. I'm going to ask you some questions and so we can have a conversation. You are a sixth generation Idahoan, which I think is super cool. Like your great, great, greats came into the Magic Valley and they helped dig the canals like for water down in the Magic Valley, which for people listening the Magic Valley, that's the area of like Twin Falls, Burley Rupert, that's Magic Valley. We live in the Treasure Valley. There's lots of valleys around Idaho, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, and we have a lot of mountains, so that tends to happen. If you have a lot of mountains, you'll have a lot of valleys people live in. <laughs> yeah, mountains, valleys, rivers. We ex- Idaho is beautiful. But a lot of times when people are driving through Idaho, they only know like I-84, which happens to be more like a little bit deserty looking and a lot of, you know, a lot of farms around along 84. But Idaho is just beautiful. Okay. So, but even though you're a sixth generation Idahoan, you've lived in lots of, we lived in lots of different states. It's true. Over the years. And so you've been to, you know, three other states and two places in Idaho for school. So you were a new kid at school twice in Idaho. Yeah. Once in fifth grade and then once in 10th grade. What was that like? What's it like to be a new kid at school? I mean, yeah, even before fifth grade, I was a new kid at school like three more times. Um, But definitely remember, you know, fifth grade and my sophomore year the most. Um, I mean, we all know it can be hard. It's hard to like meet new people and make new friends. 10th grade was especially difficult because of um, COVID and kind of the way my school was set up. But um, I just noticed people were pretty apprehensive to, like, talk to me because they had not already known me for three-plus years. So that's just, like, not not even a thought. It was kind of getting to know me, and that was kind of difficult and kind of unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when you say, you know, you were a new school, a new kid during COVID, that was really challenging. I remember like just watching you and your siblings go through that. That was hard. We had planned to move way before COVID hit. And then we moved, you finished online, you finished school online in our old district in Idaho. And then in the fall you started and it was a half and half. So you were in school 
half the days and you were at home learning online half the days. And that was hard for a lot of people for different reasons. And then when you were at school, you had a mask on. What was that like? Honestly, I didn't I didn't notice it. I mean, yeah, I personally didn't care about the masks too much. But what was tough was that we we had to sit much further apart, you know, to social distance. So you couldn't really talk to people very easily in class. And then consequently, you couldn't really get to know them very well. Yeah. So it took you a long time to make friends. Yeah, I did. But I, I made friends at the end of my sophomore year and they were great. And I hung out with them all the time and still friends with a lot of them to this day and hang out mm-hmm. yeah. and some of those friends you made during like getting involved in programs so we're talking about extracurricular music and clubs how did those types of programs help connect you with other students your age and your teachers yeah so those friends I made in um in jazz band but I had like met some of them in marching band earlier in the year um and and really band and, and choir is where I made most of my friends in high school because I just spent the most time with them and we kind of were able to connect over, you know, the music we were learning and kind of the, the struggles that go along with that. One of the things that I thought was really profound was when we moved from one area of Idaho to another and your choir teacher or someone up in your old school had known or was aware of your of like some music directors at our new high school. I thought that that was a really cool thing that often, I mean, can happen around any state, but does happen around Idaho, where if teachers are invested in their programs, they know other professionals around the state. And that really benefited you. Do you mind sharing about that? Oh, yeah, it was, it was cool. I remember I mentioned to her where I was going to school, my choir director at my old school, um, and she, she was like, oh yeah, you know, you should, I know the guy who directs choirs at Eagle High School and he's great. You know, you should totally like audition for his choirs and, and get in his program because it's really good. And throughout high school, he knew, he knows like a ton of people, um, just in lots of states. And so whenever we went on like a choir trip, he would like go visit these people and their programs and we would get to like, um, we, we get to share with these other programs and kind of work with these other really, really good choirs. And it was awesome. Yeah. And see how other people are doing it in other places. That's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was really neat was that, I mean, you're a piano player and the, the band director had found out that you were a piano player and he invited you to be a part of the marching band. And this was significant to me because this was a teacher who was trying to make things work for his students during the marching band season. What was that like? Yeah, so before classes started, he, because I had signed up for jazz band, he um, called me on the phone and was like, hey, I'm the I'm the band director at your uh, new high school, and I'm just kind of like, want to get to know you. So he asked, we talked for a little bit, and then he asked me like what instrument I played. I told him I played piano, and he's like, oh, that's that's great. He's like, well... I have a keyboard part for this marching show. I wondered if you'd like to play for me. And I was like, sure, yeah. You know, marching band ended up not being for me just because I, like, was not able to commit to the rehearsal times and the schedule. It's very very rigorous. But, I mean, the music was super fun, and I I had a good time. Yeah. Well, and to that idea – you had a teacher that was working on his program and building that program and making observations about class class lists and reach out to you 
And that reach out to you helped get you more acquainted with other students in the program and helped you get acquainted with him. And even though marching band didn't end up being your thing, that his 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 desire to reach out and build his program was the beginning of something for you and friends in the music program. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's, to me, that's like so key about some of your experiences at your new school, right? Like right at the beginning, you had teachers who cared. And that to me is really profound. Oh, yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about you went through... AP classes, dual enrollment classes, and IDLA classes. And I have another episode about this. It's called Advanced Opportunities. That's the Advanced Opportunities is the program in Idaho where students have, public school students have access to $4,125 that they can use for their school experience. And you utilized these three components. So I'd love to hear about some of your experiences in those three classroom environments. Yeah, it all started with um, taking IDLA classes when I was in like seventh grade and, and junior high. And so that, you know, that allowed me to have a lot more fun in high school with my class selection choices. I didn't have to take a bunch of the stuff that most people have to take. Like, oh, I have to take health my freshman year. I kind of just got to take like choir and band and like and more every year. I took like two years of two different languages. It was super fun. Um, And that's just because I did some online overload classes in uh, junior high. It was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So now move on to your AP classes. Oh, yeah. Then, then in high school, you take AP and also college credit classes. Every high school does it a little different. But what's nice about like AP classes is that you the curriculum is the same no matter where you go to school, um, you know, which is nice if you like move school some middle of the year or something. You can be reliably on track because everyone takes the same AP exam at the end of the year if you choose to take it. And depending on how you do, you'll get college credit. And that college credit does transfer anywhere. It'll transfer, it's guaranteed to transfer to any school in the United States. Um, And so if you get like a certain score, like um, it's on a scale of one to five, then you'll get certain amounts of credit or no credit. Like if you get a one, you, you didn't pass, you don't get credit. Two, you also did not pass, but you didn't do as badly. Three, you passed. Most schools will accept a three for some form of credit, but um, usually less than four or five if they do accept it. And then four and five are like the best scores. And then you get the most credit for it. And a five, you're guaranteed to get credit for it no matter where you go. And sometimes it gives you credit, like more credits than a four. Like I got a five on AP Music Theory. um, And so my college, BYU, uh, gave me credit for two different music theory classes is kind of cool yeah and so when you're saying when you're talking about that credit transferring and like you're going to get college credit what does that college credit look like though on your transcript uh it just it's just a pass fail so you get a pass it doesn't affect your gpa which is kind of nice uh for some people especially if you got like um it's nice that it's not a letter grade like because then they could totally be like oh if you got a five then we'll give you an a but if you got a four we'll give you a b so it's just a pass, which is good, but also it doesn't help your GPA so that, you know, everything you get in college or from dual credit will affect that. And, you know, dual credit is nice 
in that you don't have to, it doesn't all ride on one big test because you could be a great, you know, AP chemistry student and then just have a really bad test and not do well and then boom, you don't get credit. Versus dual credit, you take it all year, right? And then let's say you take it through like Boise State, which is like one that my high school goes through. Um, then like they have a test that they want the students to take. So you take some sort of test that Boise State kind of administers. And that kind of just goes towards your final grade. It might be like 20% of it or whatever. And then whatever your final grade for your high school class is, is going to be the final grade for your college class. So you get like a 90, 90%, you get like an A minus, right? Or whatever you get. So it's, it's nice. But then also that's a grade, right? It's a solid grade on your college transcript. Mm-hmm. So, and when we're talking about dual credit, we're talking about college classes. So, for example, you took like intro to college composition yeah. your junior year, and that was a class that was administered through CWI. Yeah. And that CWI credit was different than a um, a credit a class that you took through Boise State that transferred out of state like so when we're talking about dual credit in idaho those classes are going to transfer anywhere in idaho and you're going to get that solid credit anywhere at a state school but if you're an idaho student and you take a dual credit and you transfer out of state that's going to look different at every like um academic institution and so that's the that to me is the real difference between ap and dual credit is really making that distinction as to what you really want as you like work through your high school years. That's true. And it really depends on where you go to school. Like um, where I initially used to go to high school because I, I did my freshman year in, um, in Lewiston, they do theirs through a state college. And so I got a couple of credits like bi- for biology, for example. Um, which was like, oh, I was like, this is great because I'm majoring in microbiology right now. Um, and I go to transfer them. And for for my degree, you have to take like the, you know, like a biology majors level biology because you can always, there's always like a general level that people can take just to get their credits done. But they're like a political science major, so they don't need to know biology necessarily. And my biology from the state school got booted down to like the biology 100 level. And so I still had to take it like this last semester, but, um, like my Boise state credit that transferred over just fine for like Japanese, for example, that transferred over great. And so it was like, you know, depending on what college your high school goes through might really affect whether or not you choose to go for AP or dual credit a lot more. Mm -hmm. And then I really liked the advice that your AP music theory teacher gave you after you got your five on the, from the exam. Yeah. He, only a couple of us took the exam and all, cause we were all like, everyone else took it for like the class for fun. But a lot of us were like, oh, we really want to go like do music after high school, be very serious about it. But he was like, hey, you know, you guys are really, really good at this, but you should I would recommend just taking music theory again anyways in college because like, first of all, we were sophomores. So he's like, you'll probably forget it. He's like, even if, cause there were a couple seniors who took the exam. He's like, even for you seniors, you should still just take it again because you're going to stand out more in the class and skipping up to the next one early is not going to make you 
like special. You're just going to, you might even struggle a little too much. He's like, but if you kind of stand out in your regular class, then you'll stand out in like the program, which matters more for something like music. Right. But I mean, I, I saw it um, in one of my friends at college this year, he's a biochemistry major and he's really, he's very, very good. Like he got a five on his AP chemistry exam, but like he took it his junior year and he was also like, geez, I don't want to jump in. He, that, he was like, that was part of it. He's like, I don't want to jump into, um, you know, the next level of chemistry right away. Cause you know, he could totally review everything he knows in like two or three weeks before classes start. But he was like, no, like I'm going to, and, and you know, he, the class was really hard. I think he's glad he took it again because he ended up doing a lot better than most of his peers. Um, you know, and on the grading curves, he was always like very far above the average. So he got much better grades and, and consequently probably did really well in that class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and another thing I think to note in the AP classes are that when you start taking an AP class, pretty early on, you have to decide if you want to take the exam at the end of the year. And so you sign up to take the exam, but you don't have to. Number one is you don't have to take the exam. But two, if you sign up to take the AP exam and then you get partway or all the way to the end and the student thinks, oh, no, I should not take this exam because I'm not going to I'm not even going to pass. They don't have to take the exam. True. And usually there's like a there's a small fee that's associated with not taking it, like $40 or something like that, um, that's not paid for through advanced opportunities. Yeah, you have to pay that out of pocket. You have to I pay that out. Yeah. Yeah, you did do that. Yeah, I remember that. You were like, I don't want to take this exam. It's not going to go well. I don't want to take a day out of my, my schedule to do it because I know I'm not going to do well. And I think the other thing to note in the AP classes are that really that whole class is geared towards taking that exam yeah yeah sometimes it can be um like less fun or less it feels a little less practical sometimes like um the ap physics class my teacher like he really tried to like get us to do more labs and more like practical application of the concepts which is where i did much better but the ap test like you the ap exam they don't give you any sort of lab or practical function you know even in ap chemistry there's no like practical lab it's just all on paper and so it can be a bit um two-dimensional in that way but what's nice about like his general physics class is they just did almost all labs and it was great like he he those students tend to like that class more and they probably get more out of it if they like it more mm-hmm. well and so you're t- one of the things that you mentioned is like getting something out of class, which I mean, that's what we hope as educators and parents and students. We want we want our kids to get something out of class. Well, one of the things that I noticed about you was that you as a student would work hard for teachers that you felt liked you, were invested in you, and had a classroom culture that was very um, just inclusive and not necessarily even the classroom culture had to be that great, but teachers who you felt like were invested in you. Why was that? Um, I, I mean, I definitely was more motivated to do the work, you know, for those teachers and it was a lot more fun. Um, but also those teachers who tend to be more nice, more fun in their class tend to, um, justify the work that they give you much better kind of 
make it make sense to, to be giving you this, right? A teacher might assign students a project, but then be like, you know, like if we had a big physics project once and he was like, hey, I'm giving you this physics project so that you can show me that you understand all these principles that we learned so far and apply them. And like, you know, some people like probably didn't want to do it, but I don't think anyone would say that it was dumb. It was a dumb assignment to do. Like we can all say, yeah, like this makes sense to be giving us, right? And, you know, he did a good job of, of doing that versus like some other classes might give us busy work and people, people hate the busy work, but then they ultimately just don't like the teacher for that. And when people don't, when people say they didn't like a class, when you ask them, I'm like, oh, like, why didn't you like, why didn't you like this, you know, AP psychology class, bro? And they're like, man, I just didn't like my teacher or, you know, or like, oh, the teacher, like people always start with like the teacher, but no one's ever like. Man, I just really, really didn't like learning about Freud in my psych class. Oh, I didn't like learning about glycolysis and biology. Most people don't say that. They say like, oh, the teacher did this, the teacher did this, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it is very true that a teacher, I mean, we know that it's the teacher that has the impact on the content, right? It's the teacher that brings the content to life and the classroom environment to life. Um <clears throat> In the, there's an article that just came out titled The 10 Most Significant Education Studies of 2023 by Yuki Tarada and Stephen Merrill. And this is found on the Edutopia website, which is the George Lucas Educational Foundation. And one of the research studies that they're dubbing as the top 10 was how tone of voice changes classroom culture. And I thought this was significant because researchers observed teens and tweens as they received instruction and went on to do the work in the class. And they observed teachers saying, giving instructions like, I'm waiting for people to quiet down or it's time to tidy up your belongings. And they noted when it was delivered in warm, neutral or controlling tones. And they noted that while the effect was the effect was unintended, authoritative tones came off as confrontational, undermining a student's sense of competence and discouraging them from confiding in teachers. But warm tones, warm supportive tones contributed to a classroom environment that reinforced learning across multiple social and academic dimensions, like a sense of belonging, autonomy, and enjoyment in the class. And this is kind of something that I feel like I'm hearing you say when you talk about teachers who provide meaningful work and teachers who are creating that classroom environment where students want to be there and be engaged. How did you experience that in school? Oh, geez. Um, yeah, teachers that teachers that cared were definitely able to to prove it to their students and to show that. Because, um, you know, everyone's different and they kind of, some teachers definitely will like joke with their students more, give them a hard time. But like those students will know that that teacher cares in the end versus, um, you know, I've had teachers who have literally said like, we're going to do this because I say so. Like do it because I said so. And then they give us assignments and that's that are busy work and no one really likes them and no one really likes their class. Even if it's really easy, even if it's really easy, people still don't like the class, which is crazy to me, but kind of makes sense. 
Mm -hmm. And I was just talking to another teenager recently, and she was sharing about how for her now that she's getting older, I mean, she's 17, and that for her being at school can be really challenging because she just sometimes feels like a puppet that's moving from one classroom to the next. And the classes that she enjoys the most are the ones where the teachers are engaged with her, treat her like someone who can make decisions on their own. And that's where she feels valued and that's where she then wants to contribute to the whole classroom experience. Oh yeah, I, I totally get that. And I, I feel that, you know, even in my university experience, like going to classes where I got to be more involved with the teacher and, you know, sometimes the nature of them is like, oh, you're in this big lecture with like 150 people. It's kind of is what it is. But like we have some small classes or some small class days in certain courses. And I always looked forward to those because of those reasons. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I thought was, about your experience was that so you would take and I've actually had a conversation with his teacher about it your band teacher that he created this environment in class that was very inclusive for all sorts of different types of students lots of kids really enjoy being in band and sometimes you would come home really frustrated about something that had happened in class and it's not like class just was so ideal there were frustrating things about class, the class and maybe you weren't prepared or maybe you felt like you were called out or, or whatever, but you never questioned how much that teacher cared about you because he'd created that foundation from the start. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and that was, you know, sometimes I didn't practice when I should have. And sometimes, you know, I would just get bored. Like sometimes my part, he would just work with my section less because, well, maybe we didn't have any problems to work on and so we kind of just sit there and wait you know and so I, I might get bored or, or not but yeah it's totally true I I never I never wondered if if the guy cared or or if um you know he really like wanted us to succeed or not because I know he did yeah that's what mattered and this idea too that there, one of the teachers said when they were talking about this, these tones in the classroom, one of the teachers in the study said, it takes years to find the right tonal balance. Neither high expectations nor kind hearts can do the job alone. Teachers, they, she said, you know, teachers need to strive for warm, supportive tones and then draw on the wellspring of trust to hold students to high standards of deep engagement with course content. And that was something that deep, those high standards of deep engagement with course content, those classes that you invested in, really invested in, and that you felt like the teacher was invested in the students and in that, in the course content, the teachers that had like, like can hit all of these markers were teachers that had high standards. They weren't letting you slide through these experiences. I mean, your choir teacher was one of them in my mind that he had really high standards for you guys. Um, but you wanted to, you wanted to work hard. I mean, you had English teachers, history teachers that, and, and social studies teachers that had really high standards and that expected the students to engage in the course content. But they also had set those those classroom cultures and had those, you know, those tones of engagement with students that showed that, hey, I see you and I respect you as a student. 
as your instructor. Oh yeah, it's 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 always good to have teachers like that, and um, you know those are the the classes I always look back on fondly and that I actually still remember from high school. I forget a lot of the bad ones. Yeah, and there was something that your music teacher said to you once. Your your choir teacher said that I thought was so profound. After you had gone through some competitions, you'd performed, you know, you'd you'd won the region competition but you didn't end up winning the state competition and as your mom I was like helping you work through that you know I was trying to like give you support but it didn't really seem to be working it it wasn't like connecting with you the kind of support but then your music teacher noticed and he shared something with you that really helped you oh yeah he was like you are too results you're too you're too focused on results in like the most possibly the most subjective competition like do you think you know music competitions are subjective for instruments but they're even more subjective for singers because just kind of of the nature of how you can play and also instruments are a lot more standardized than the human voice so it's very subjective in a lot of ways and and he kind of said that to me he's like listen you were great and he's like you could have done the district competition you know, because there's like a top six, five more times, and y'all would have placed differently every single time. Like, he's like, that's probably how it would have went, because that's the nature of these things. So he's like, so I'd be happy you did super well at the district. Um, I'd be happy that you placed at state, but he's like, it's, it's kind of the way it goes, you know. Yeah. And that was, that was really helpful. Yeah. And I love that he just, I mean, he, I, when I heard you retell that at home I remember thinking gosh that's a teacher who cares and is invested in his students but also is going to be honest and just like share it in a caring way and that's what I feel like he did with that so talk to me about the student experience stereotypes versus what is actually true these are things that we've talked about and I I kind of find them interesting from your perspective oh yeah so there's definitely like some truth to some student stereotypes like how people say like, oh, seniors get lazy or, you know, like junior year is very rigorous or how freshman year, like freshmen are annoying and everyone's annoyed by freshmen or whatever. And there's always like some truth to that, like especially for for freshmen, um, the, you know, like when you're that age, like 12, 13, 14, especially, you're kind of starting to actually have your own opinions. I feel like it's that kind of time of your life when you're doing that and it's probably has some correlation with like actual human physical development um in fact you're going through you know um puberty and like you know becoming an adolescent um that can be like they're annoying because they are but they're annoying because they're just trying to like be they're trying to learn how to be an adult and sometimes kind of you know, like joking. I think it's pretty funny. You know, and my own brother was a freshman last year. I was like, give him a hard time about it. But like he was, I still, you know, didn't like try and like be so oppressive about it that I was like, I don't even want to include you in anything because that can, it can get taken that far where freshmen don't get opportunities just because of that. But, um, you know, and, and conversely, there's like the senioritis stereotype where like, oh, seniors are so lazy their senior year. And it kind of makes sense, especially like second semester when a lot of these kids have already gotten into schools and they're like, oh, this is great. And so people kind of slack off and, and, you know, you definitely feel less motivated 
you're like, man, I don't want to do this work. I didn't want to do a lot of work my senior year, but I still, you know, tried to get it done. But I also saw that, like, the stereotype was harmful to people. Like, when I was a freshman at my old school, people really, especially because it was a senior high school, so there were no freshmen there because I had taken IDLA classes. I, like, had enough credits I could just start taking sophomore classes. I, I really got dogged on for being a freshman, and so I was just like, I just felt like I didn't belong at school. I didn't want to go there. Um, and like my senior year, I saw it affect other people were like some, some of my friends who had always been super studious, much better student than me. Like I'm a chronic procrastinator. <laughs> my senior year, I was like, I'm going to get my things together. And I did, but these, these people were like, Oh, like I just feel, I'm just feeling the senioritis come on, man. Which is like, okay. But then they would just like deliberately be lazy and like not do their work and slack off because they felt like they were entitled to do that. And I've seen some, you know, like I've talked to some friends since I've come home and they're, they're like, oh yeah, I'm like totally procrastinating stuff in college. Like stale, like it's still affecting them. Kind of like change in mindset they never get out of. And that's, I just think that's super harmful to kind of, you know, acknowledge that like it's true people will do these things for sorts of reasons, but then they just like, they become the stereotype. It's so bad. Mm. Well, and it reminds me of something that I heard actually from Superintendent Debbie Critchfield, who is the um, superintendent of public instruction for the state of Idaho. And when she was campaigning around the state, we had her at our home and a lot of different people came to listen to her. And one of the things that she shared was that she wanted to create an environment, like an opportunity for juniors and seniors to be able to get out of the classroom seat and go do more hands-on experiences for things that they cared about. And really the, the, the intent behind the idea that I think she's, you know, learning about working to incorporate, she's been in for a year now, is that we need to create experiences for teenagers to stay engaged in what they're learning, right? So they don't fall into like the senioritis stereotype because it maybe feels mundane and boring. And actually what's interesting for me is that I actually saw the opposite in you. So, I mean, I remember being like when you were a seventh grader and you coming to me and being like, mom, I have this project due. And I was like, oh, like, can I help you? And you'd be like, yeah, I, I need a lot of help. It's due tomorrow. And I'd be like, ah, Carter, this is, you know, tough. Yeah. <laughs> Every, everyone has that experience, though. Everyone does that at some point. But like, I never stopped doing that. It was also like every single project I ever did. Yeah. Until my senior year. Like, I never did papers junior year for that college comp class that never did this i like never had a draft i just like did the whole thing the day before drafted up and just like submit every time well and there is something about i mean they've done research on uh procrastination and how procrastinating can help uh can help people if it's if if that's their method to get something done very quickly in an efficient manner kind of right at the end but just this there is something to be said for learning the value of work and learning how to invest in something that we care about. And I actually just saw something on TikTok, <laughs> TikTok that was how it's really important to help our teenagers experience and feel the value of work and investing in things that we don't necessarily want to do. 
but that really is kind of what it means to be an adult from my perspective in like doing the things we don't necessarily want to do. It was a conversation I had once while I was long-term subbing last year with a bunch of seniors. And one of the seniors who had been 18 for a while was like, well, I don't even like want to do this. We don't even get to be treated like an adult. Like I'm an adult. And actually she wasn't quite 18 yet. And so I had a class, I had a conversation with the kids about, well, what does it mean to be an adult? And we kind of talked about accountability and working through, um, working through tasks that we don't necessarily want to do, but know that we have to do. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. Like when it comes to, to doing the things that you don't want to do, you know, there's a lot of ways to approach it. Um, I think something that's helpful for me, um, is that like, I do the things I don't want to do so that I can have time for the things I actually care about doing. You know, because in, in, um, in high school, like, procrastinating was just so bad because I had nothing better to do than, than actually just do my work. Um, but instead, I just, like, played games and whatnot. But in college now, you kind of, you can do whatever you want, you know. And, and I took a lot of classes this semester, um, but I still cared about, you know, exercising or making time to, like, ha- be able to hang out with my friends on the weekend and stuff like that. Those things mattered to me. And so I made sure to get my work done, um, even when I was like, do not want to, you know, do this stupid assignment and like, no one's going to make me do it. You know, you got to get it done. Um, and to like the point of doing the things you don't want to do, it takes, it definitely takes discipline and that's something you have to work on too, but there's a lot of, you know, different ways you can approach it. And that's the way I, I like to approach it. It's like, I'm getting this done now. I can, like, do the things I care about. Um, but in high school, you know, with teachers, they should make they should make the work make sense to the student, I think. Make it meaningful. Because if the work has some sort of meaning that's valuable, I think more people would like it and enjoy the class. Consequently, like, my seventh grade English class, my teacher, it's English. Most people really don't like it. And we're talking about, like, foreshadowing and stuff. And, like, analyzing poetry for, like, alliteration and stuff. I don't circle all the alliteration and this Shakespearean sonnet. But everyone loved him and loved his class because of that. Because he cared. He showed that he cared so much about his students and that he genuinely cared about, like, the stuff we were doing. Sometimes teachers can come off as just, like, yeah, we're doing this. But they, they don't even really care about what we're doing. It's like, geez, why, do, why should I care? And this, he really made everything in that class work so well. And like everyone, people were like, people get competitive about like who can find the most things in this poem and find the most significance. People get competitive about that. And like, I never experienced that ever again in the English class where people actually cared because it wasn't like, it wasn't cool to care about it or like be invested, but also because the assignments were kind of super lame <laughs> for most of the stuff. So like, why would we care? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you taking that seventh grade English class and it really surprised me that you would come home and 
you would have sometimes you'd have prompts from your English teacher like hey make sure you talk about this with your parents but then there were just so many things in the class that you loved and I think that that's what's possible when we have teachers when we have adults who invest in our teenagers and just their students in general their kids are that these kids then have the potential to tap into some of their own interests right because we're presenting all of these different uh, topics to them. And kids don't necessarily really know what they're into until they get exposed to it from someone else who's also really excited about that thing. Yeah, no, that's that's so true. That's why that's why I've definitely been, I think, more into certain like parts of school and why I think I liked um I think that's why I liked like a lot of my science classes more on average, because like Teaching science is hard and learning it, it's hard to like the level, you know, you have to learn it to be able to teach it. And so the only people who are going to do that and really care, I think, are going to be like much more passionate about it. Like my seventh grade science teacher was also really great. And I loved like her life science class and learning about that cool stuff. And, you know, now in um in my university classes, like my biology lectures were definitely my favorite because the guy like cared about his body of research and so much it was just super fun for me to to be involved in that class yeah it your seventh grade science teacher I'll never forget she's retired now she was actually a professional outside of the classroom she was a scientist and then she transitioned she went through the you know become a teacher program basically that Idaho something that Idaho has and she became a teacher and she took her love for science that she'd lived for for, you know, decades and brought it into the classroom. And that was, I mean, I, again, you and your sister had her and she was just, she made an impact on both of you because you both really enjoy science. And now your youngest sister, she has a science teacher. She's in sixth grade that she loves. And one of the things that I love about this science teacher is that at the beginning of class, she says like hello scientists and she calls them scientists and I think that's so cool because she's planting this idea into every student's mind hey I'm a scientist when I'm in science class yeah that's that's really awesome and I I didn't know that actually it's really cool and um and I think a lot of it for these students is just kind of believing that they can you know and so that that totally helps with that it's great yeah. And just this idea about being able to believe in a future, right? And having the opportunity to dream. Do you feel like you had an opportunity to dream and believe in a future as you were growing up? I mean, I definitely think I'm I'm someone who's like much more intrinsically driven. Like I'm and and to this day I feel like a lot of the things I've done I've always done because I wanted to do them. Um, and like no one has, no one can really take, stray me from the path that I'm on because that's what I, that's what I've decided to do. Um, so, you know, I don't really necessarily feel pressure about that, but I definitely think like for some things more than others, I was allowed to, um, dream and like inside the school system, I felt very encouraged by my teachers and mentors and whatnot. Um, and sometimes um, at home, you know, it's important for parents to like be 
it's hard to find the balance between like being smart about like people's future choices, but also allowing people to like do what they want to do, but also maybe like prove it that they can. Like when I was a sophomore, I wanted to, I really wanted to be like a professional musician and like go into that. But I also was not like practicing enough to be doing that. But I, if I, if I had developed those habits that year or even the next year, I definitely still could have done it. Um, and I think you guys were a bit too practical about it, but you know, like seeing me definitely like not put in enough work, we're like, eh, you know, like this is a great choice, but also music's very uncertain. There's also a lot of opportunities. It's just important to be knowledgeable about like what's truly possible and whatnot. I guess it's it's just very unique, but finding that balance is the most important thing. Yeah, I agree. There was something that you had said to us, like us, meaning like your parents, when you were a sophomore and you were talking about music and and you're right, like just dad and I were really practical, like just super practical and kind of sharing our practicality with you. And you you expressed to us in a very... I would say like straightforward way, like just very direct that, hey, this is this is something that I'm dreaming about and I feel like you're poo-pooing all over it and that doesn't feel good. And that honesty was so good for me to hear. And I know for your dad too. I mean, he's not here, but I'm just going to speak for him for a second just because he and I talked about it that I remember thinking like, whoa, that's not what I want to do. And I'm really glad that my teenager is being honest with me about something that I'm actually doing that I don't want to be doing. And that was really, that was really helpful for me. Oh, yeah. I, I, you're welcome, I guess. I don't know <laughs> what else to say about that. But it's important to be able to like inst- have the confidence to say those kinds of things too and, and instill that confidence in and people because sometimes they are like not able to like have that kind of confrontational experience too and that's that can definitely make or that could be a, that can make the difference in whether or not they actually go and pursue what matters most to them and what they probably would succeed most in too yeah i agree so tell me i wanted to talk about bullying a little bit because you kind of had mentioned your freshman year you were a freshman and a senior high. So there were only 10th, 11th and 12th graders in the senior high, but you had decided to go over there. This was your decision because the junior high didn't have any more classes for you to take. Um, and so you ended up taking your English class online through IDLA before going over there. And then you were, so this freshman with all of these senior high students And you did have some experiences where you have had some experiences through your school year where you were bullied in different ways. Not getting into specifics, but just kind of talking about the general concept. What does that do to your world when you're experiencing that? Uh, I mean, it just really makes you, I don't know, I really didn't want to do anything. I sure didn't want to be at school. I remember once in my freshman year, I had like six classes with this one guy who just like would not, who would not relent. I mean, he's just dogging on me all the time and I didn't appreciate it, especially because I didn't feel like he was joking. Um, And what made it worse is that in like certain classes, you know, 
um, like my English class, geez, that teacher just like was the, the great enabler of this guy. She would like laugh at everything he said, especially if it was like pointed at me. And, you know, I consequently like probably I loved choir so much that year because he wasn't in that class. And, you know, I got into choir a lot probably because of that. But um, it was just it really sucked. And I, I didn't look forward to doing anything. I didn't want to to get work done or or pay attention or participate. And that, you know, I still did. Um, I still did a lot because I'm, you know, a very talkative person. I want to participate in class and and I just kept trying, and I'm glad I did, but I think it would, that kind of experience would be much worse for someone who's, like, kind of shy to participate. Like, they probably would never talk in class if that was the case. I can imagine that would just be awful. Mm-hmm. And then you, I agree with you, and then you also had experience when we when we came to the new school, yeah. and that was, I mean, watching you go through that as a parent was just excruciating, and finding ways to be supportive, whether that was just like in our home or speaking out on your behalf, but and, but then one of the things that we did was, you know, because you had thought about, do I even want to stay in school? You know, I mean, it really impacted your mental health, and so one of the things that we did was like we're a family that goes to church but we opted to send you to another like over to another area to like go to church just so you could have an experience somewhere else that was like kind of outside of our just like little immediate community but still from my perspective still very much part of that school community and you had the experience of feeling loved by adults that were outside of your home how did that experience help you through being bullied in that other moment i was really they're super nice the because we there were some friend like family friends of ours in the um, other you know church area it was nice because um like those other adults um even though like because when when uh when your parents say something nice to you, you know, you're like, oh, why are you just saying that? Because you're my mom, or because you're my dad, and so you kind of like almost don't believe them. Like you're like, I'm I'm sure they believe this is true, but I also like don't. It is you know I don't really accept it as much or whatever. But you know, other adults, uh, especially because they don't live with you, probably they don't see like all the nasty you know, annoying things you do all the time. They they only really see the good. And so then they are super positive, super nice. Um, and it's just a really great part of my week to go and just hang out with them and just have a consistently great time. I always had a great time when I was hanging out with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it that experience, when I was looking through these, uh, you know, 10 significant education studies uh, from 2023, your experience about... You know, it was it was something that started with bullying, but then what we did was just give you some more autonomy in an area of your life. And one of the studies is a new theory about the teen mental health crisis. And a lot of our teens are going through different mental health issues, whether that includes depression, a feeling of persistent hopelessness, and drug addiction. And what I observed from this, you know, kind of bullying experience for you was that you did feel depressed and you had these persistent feelings of hopelessness 
And while root causes, they say, from the study remain elusive, a new study from 2023 offers further explanation. They said that, you know, after scoring surveys and data sets and cultural artifacts, researchers are theorizing that a primary cause uh, for mental health is a decline over decades in opportunities for children and teens to play, roam, and engage in other activities independent of direct oversight and control by adults. Yeah, definitely. That's I think that's definitely true. You know, ask your parents. Ask your parents. They're like, oh yeah, I always went and hung out, played outside until the dinner bell rang and or until the sun went down. And they're just their parents don't know where they are, and it's you know, it's probably not safe to be doing that. But there's definitely a happy medium between like releasing your children for the day and being like, I don't know where they're going, going versus being like a lot of parents now, helicopter parents. You can track your kid very easily with their phones and they can, they don't really have choices um and they also probably feel a, very confined because of that very trapped you know because of the easy accessibility it is for parents to kind of control their their kids but also people might feel this way because of like i don't know there's there's a lot and we see a lot of um bad stuff that's out of out of our control on uh, online and whatnot and so you know for me because I felt like I couldn't control all the nasty stuff I was going through at that time um being able to control um that part and like you know having a good experience like every week was just super nice and so being able to control like something good for themselves I think is just the most important thing in that case. Yeah, I really agree. That autonomy, I noticed that autonomy for you felt, I I observed it to be so freeing. And when I was reading this study, like when I was reading about this study, I thought that's one of the things that I think helped Carter through those like persistent, feel, persistent feeling of hopelessness and some of that depression that you were experiencing. Yes, you know, we were doing other things for you, but that ability to have that autonomy was really valuable during that time period. And I think it's really important, not just if if a teen is depressed or, you know, feeling hopeless or, or even, um, you know, addicted drugs or, or having any other um mental health crisis. I think it's important for teens to feel that autonomy throughout their throughout their adolescent experience and being able to figure out how to incorporate that into our school communities, right? Whether that's like in our classroom or in our homes or in our communities, figuring out how to make that work for teenagers is really important because these teenagers are growing into adults right? They're practicing to become an adult. And I know that you and I have talked, we've had lots of conversations about this before, about what it means to, you know, become an adult, but but that practicing in our, in those adolescent years. Yeah, that's, that's totally true. Um, you know, practicing like when, when, uh, when a baby practices talking, do we discourage it or like just you know dog on them to the extent that we do when teenagers are trying to practice being adults because babies are cute and you know how would they know better but teenagers teenagers they should know better even though like oh they're not legal adults but we're gonna 
we're going to put the the burden of like, oh, yes, you are adults. Like it's it's kind of a double standard almost for them where they're like in classrooms, especially it's like, oh, it's, it's seniors. Oh, come on. You guys are adults now. You should be more responsible. But then you will like treat them like a child and not give them responsibilities and still expect them to be acting like adults or when they try and practice being an adult or speak up for themselves. It's like, now you listen to me, young man. I'm an adult, and you're not, so your opinion is invalid. Now shut up, you know, like, it, it can really go that way, and a lot of, it sounds ridiculous, but, like, it can really go that way in a lot of situations, and, you know, these people, people need opportunities to practice, or else they will go and turn 18 and go live on their own, and suddenly they're, like, incapable of being autonomous. It's like, I wonder why, like, I've definitely seen it in college, some people who are, who have, like, their parents have done everything for them. And it's like, oh, geez, this person does not even know how to, like, do their laundry. Let alone have, like, confrontations or go advocate for themselves. Like, maybe, you know, whether that's, like, for a grade or something. Like, they're like, oh, I really feel like this professor didn't grade me fairly. Womp womp. You know, like, or you could maybe go send them an email. Right? But people people might have the confidence to do that if they've just been, you know, put in a box all the time mm-hmm. and not been allowed to practice those skills yeah and that was something that i observed in our home as i mean you talk about how a kid i mean you bring up such a brilliant it's it's a it's a brilliant i the, this concept is so like brilliant to me because you know you're basically saying hey when a when a baby is little and they're learning to walk and they're learning to talk we're very supportive we provide this supportive environment. But then when our 11 and 12 and 13-year-olds, when in their development, when they're starting to break away from adults, and that's important part of their development, they're breaking away from their parents, they're starting to develop their own identity. When they're starting to do that, parents start to take it really personally. Because for the first 10 years, those kids have been been reinforcing the parent, right? And the parent is also learning how to be a parent. It's not like people are taking really, not really taking very many classes, right, on maybe some of the social and emotional components of what it's like to be a parent. It's hard to be a parent. And so our kids are breaking away from us and parents are having a hard time and kids are just experiencing this for the first time too. And I remember we had an experience with you and something had happened and I was like, oh my gosh, this feels so out of character for Carter. I don't, what's going on here? Why do I not recognize what's happening? It's not even that big of a deal, but it is a big deal. And how do we address this? And it, you know, we were able to work through the experience together, but I remember thinking, I, as a parent, I need to change the way that I'm interacting with my kid because my kid is not nine. You know, he's not he's not a little kid. He's an adolescent. And I have to change the way that I engage with him because I want him to be a successful and productive adult. And so what do I have to do as an adult to help him practice getting there? And so we kind of like figuratively developed this idea that later in your teen years, I started I started calling it table talk with teens, 
where we invited you and your siblings, whatever, to the table, like figuratively or literally to the table, and we'd have a conversation with you and we'd work through the problem together instead of just telling you what was going to happen. And I have, I've had some adults tell me like, wow, that's so awesome. And I've had some pushback from adults like you are Alexis, as a as an adult, you're giving way too much freedom to a child. And I think, well, it doesn't take away from the boundaries that are there. Like there are parameters, but inviting teenagers to the table allows them to feel like I am a I'm an important player in my own life. I need to make these decisions. I need to be a part of the problem solving process. And whoa, okay, my parents are learning too. So this might be kind of clunky, you know, for a while, like certainly it was clunky for a while. But what did that mean to you to be invited to the table? Um, I think it definitely showed that you guys had confidence that I could solve my own problems, which is good. Um, and it was it was nice to be heard, most importantly. I think those are like the big things. But I think it's it's important to do this. And I think it's kind of silly to say that that would be giving up too much control because that's like um that's for I think it's very selfish honestly for these adults to like say that about teenagers I mean how are they supposed to be functioning adults on their own if they're not given opportunities how are they meant to solve problems we are supposed to we're the next generation that is supposed to be you know doing things, participating in society and industry and innovations. And like, we cannot do that if we are like worshiping you. I mean, let's be so real right now. I just, I think that's so ridiculous. I don't know. And um, like encouraging people will just make them so much greater and, and enhance their potential so much more. And it's, it's just so important to me. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Another study in this top 10, like education studies of 2023, one of the studies was a massive review on social emotional learning. And it shows yet again the value of social emotional learning. These these, uh, researchers did a comprehensive meta-analysis of 424 studies involving over a half a million K through 12 students. And they were looking for how school-based social-emotional learning programs and strategies such as mindfulness, interpersonal skills, classroom management, and emotional intelligence impacted the students. And their findings were that students who participated in such programs experienced, quote, improved academic achievement, school climate, school functioning, social-emotional skills, attitudes, and pro-social and civic behaviors. Now, there is this caveat that some parents and politicians are skeptical of SEL programs, but when they attach the word academic learning to it, it allows that, it helps foster that parent buy-in. And I'm not going to get into like the specifics of why that's challenging, but basically social-emotional and academic learning have a major impact on the student experience and their outcomes to be able to have great attitudes, great skills, those pro-social and civic behaviors. And that's what I feel like is the idea 
or the incorporation of inviting teenagers to the table to help problem solve. But as adults, whether we're educators or parents, if we make the assumption that students know how to do that on their own, well, then that's an unfortunate assumption that we are making. And there were some things that I saw you do that were really, I just thought like, oh, they were really darling or really impressive, that you were very assertive. But not all of your siblings, not every, not every kid comes with that. Like, so for example, at one point you went to a parent-teacher conference without us. Yeah, you guys were out of town. And so I just like showed up to my parent-teacher conference because uh, it was right after school. I just went over to the gym and it was kind of funny to go sit at the table with my teacher and be like, how am I doing in your class? And they're like, why aren't your parents here? And I was like, because uh, they're out of town. And they're like, okay. And they're, it was kind of funny to watch them like awkwardly be like, uh, well, you're doing pretty well. And you know, I appreciate your participation or whatever, and, you know, maybe work on this and, you know, just keep up or keep up the good work, whatever. It's like, I didn't really expect to receive any criticism because I don't know if anyone would really say that to like a student, like to their face, but it was kind of funny. Um, and it was, it was fun to do and to like go talk to all my teachers. And I think after that, I think they, I think I gained their respect a little bit more because even when I was like the only freshman in all their classes. And so... I kind of have to like prove myself a little bit more to them. And so that was helpful. And it was also kind of just silly. Yeah. And not all kids are like that. And you still had to learn a lot about social and emotional, like just intelligence in general. And recently, one of like your younger brother had was having something going on with a teacher. And I and the teacher had said in an email, I wished that he had come and talked to me about this issue. And I thought, well, so did I. But clearly he didn't feel comfortable doing that. And so what can I as the parent do to help foster that? Well, let's have let's have a meeting teacher and I'm going to bring my kid with me. And it was a you know what we met and it was a great conversation and I told the teacher that one of the reasons that we're having this conversation and my student, it like my kid is with me, is so that he can experience being at the table. He can experience that buy-in and learn about these skills that are needed to problem solve, right? These soft skills that we talk about all the time, but maybe we don't necessarily teach students how to do. And we just kind of like hope that they'll pick up on their own. But if we work to incorporate that into their everyday experiences, well, then then that's being intentional and that's helping them learn. And when that conversation was over, your like my, you know, your brother said to the teacher, hey, teacher, can I come in during advisory to work on this thing with you? And the teacher was super receptive. And I thought I'm witnessing a moment where this 15 year old has learned from the other adults at the table about what it means to problem solve, work through this conflict so that we can get to something beautiful on the other side. And that to me is something that you experienced in our home and you also experienced with teachers 
and you've experienced with coworkers and now with your roommates. Like these are really important skills, but it comes with teaching that social emotional learning. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's super important. I've felt it, um, you know, at work and, you know, when you have to live with people like your roommates, it's important that you can resolve conflicts and, and get along with them and and like express how you feel in words. Most of my actually pretty fortunate, like two of my other roommates are very good about it. One of them's really, really good about communicating. Um, but like one of the guys, I mean, it was pretty clear from day one, like like I think his, I just think his mom like did, you know, did a lot more for him. And so he, but he's like worked on it through semester and he's, he's actually gotten much better, you know, and, and one roommate can get like really frustrated sometimes. Um, but like the fact that I, or like my other roommates can be like patient and just like articulate herself. So when he's like getting all angry about something and just like, and the, especially in the kitchen, I mean, the guy's just slamming cabinets. It's kind of funny, but you know, we're like, hey, man, like, I'm just trying to ask you if, like, this dish is yours. There's nothing to be mad about here. And, you know, just trying to be calm about it. And he's, he'll be frustrated. And then later he'll come back and be like, hey, thanks for being patient. You know, and like, it's a bunch, it's, it's a lot healthier than if we would just get angry back or if we would just dismiss him and be like, you are weird. And I don't understand why you're doing this because like, oh, I do understand why he's, you know, being angry because I've definitely been there in terms of just like those sorts of feelings. And so the fact that I can like express that to him that I understand has just helped so much. Mm-hmm. You know? And you had experiences at work too yeah. where your coworkers, you know, just different situations came up. And I felt like you invited them to the table to have a conversation yeah, there's there's conflicts at work with people and related to the job and and not related to the job. And the one time I had this conflict with one of my coworkers where she was just like, she's very like authoritarian as like a, a boss, but she's actually she's not like our, my actual boss. She's there's like different leadership positions as a lifeguard and whatnot, but she was just like trying to command me around and I was like this is not appropriate for I, I was like I frankly don't get paid enough to be like commanded around otherwise I would have joined the military um I'm not going to receive your command here lady so I you know she tried to like get me to go in the break room and like not be around like cuss like people who were there and like basically put me in timeout and I was like no, like, I don't think this is appropriate for you to be doing. And I wrote an email to my boss and then we worked it out. But I could have just as easily, like, totally lashed out and or, like, quit. I felt like quitting my job on the spot. Honestly, I was like, I don't get paid enough for this crap. But I was able to, like, communicate how I felt, I think, pretty respectfully and somewhat de-escalate it. But even even with skills, I mean, it's just like, sometimes it just goes badly it was was pretty bad (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's tough and I think that in our school communities if we can give our teenagers the opportunity in our homes and our schools and in their workplaces so that they can learn these skills wow you know they're going to be really valuable citizens you know participants in our school community and really help build that up 
And I have seen that from other teenagers as I have as I have like substituted in the classroom and gotten to know different teenagers when I have seen different conflicts come up and show like gone to teenagers and have been like yo what really happened there and they really see that an adult cares well they really want to be honest and they really want to work through the experience to be able to create something better because they want to be understood they want to feel trusted as well and they want good things to come in their lives too yeah absolutely yeah so when you look back on your k-12 experience are there things for you that could be better or that you would change um you know i just would i think if i were to were to go back and do it again um, I mean, it's nice if you can like do all four years of the same high school because then all the programs are the same, like moving high schools. I mean, even like the class requirements can change. That can be tough, especially if you have like a plan for what you want to do. But um, assuming I'm, you know, staying at the same school, I would just try and figure out um, as soon as as fast as I could what I the th- the things I cared about most and then just focus on on learning about those things and in- investing in those things. Uh, Because that's like, that was what was valuable for me in trying to go on to like higher education after high school, you know, because not everyone will do that. And that's, that's good. Like, it's important. Um, But like, for me, the fact that I had invested so much in choir, and you know, that my job was uh, pretty intense, and I'd invested like a year over a year of time. And at that point, you know, being a lifeguard requires a lot of certifications and work and and uh, training and, and whatnot, you have to upkeep. Um, showing that I had like like proven responsibility and dedication to certain things and not kind of just hopped around to a bunch of different things because I didn't know what I wanted to do was what showed that I like could commit to some sort of collegiate program and that was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what do you like – you're a teenager and having just experienced the teenage life, I mean, and you're still experiencing it, but you know, that K-12 experience, what do you want adults to know about the teenage experience? I mean, every adult likes to say I was a teenager once or when I was your age, but then they kind of are quick to forget that this person is also a teenager because they'll like, say that to them and then treat them like they should be making decisions like they're 25 you know and so it's like oh I was a teenager once but I'm gonna judge you super harshly right now so just be just be patient I guess and be be willing to um to work with that Mm -hmm. I like that it reminds me of a line from one of the Harry Potter movies and I think it's in the book too that Harry Potter, his mentor, the, you know, the school, what's it called? Like this headmaster, headmaster. Thank you. Uh, Dumbledore, they're having this exchange and Dumbledore says to Harry, hey, basically like, hey, Harry, I'm really sorry because I, in this moment, have forgotten what it's like to be your age because I'm an old, I'm an old, you know, man now. But the fact is I have been, I have been someone your age. And I've forgotten and I'm sorry. And, you know, Harry, you've never been an adult. So you don't know what it's like to be here. 
and that it's oh it's actually really valuable for adults to show their humanity to show that they're flawed and that they make mistakes and that we can apologize for them uh, shows our teenagers that they can do the same that it's really valuable for teenagers to be able to feel their value and also know that hey I'm gonna make mistakes along the way and it's really valuable for me to know how to apologize, you know, how to say, like, gosh, I'm really sorry. I, you know, I failed on that one and having those experiences. But for adults, it's really important, like from my perspective, that we set the stage, that we show that it's okay to, it's it's normal. It's normal to make mistakes and it's normal to have feelings and and to just really help our teenagers understand all of those components, I think is an essential part of the whole experience. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. So at the end of my podcast, I always do two takeaways. And when I have guests, I ask the guests to do it and I'll do one. So would you like to go first or second in the takeaways? Um, I'll go first. Okay. Yeah. I think, you know, big takeaway is that um, it's important to, to be patient and encouraging with kids and, and really collaborate. Like collaboration is super important. You know, I like to say like it's our species superpower as as homo sapiens. We are very similar to other apes in a lot of ways. And funnily enough, if you put, a you know, up to 150 individuals with chimps and humans, our interactions and behaviors generally are like near like very, very similar. But beyond that, well, chimps can't function in groups that large, but we can because we have the ability to work together through in society and and you know follow rules and whatnot but also because we are so smart and so special um, but we should really we should use that I mean we should not take that for granted um, our ability to work together and and kind of create a better a better environment and a better future for our kids I love that thank you the the takeaway that I'm taking away from this conversation is that as humans, we're all learners. We learn as little kids, we learn as adolescents, and we learn as adults. And that teenagers are at such a crucial phase in their learning development. And as adults, it's important for us to allow teenagers to learn and while we're allowing them to learn, we can learn from them. And, and that like one of the things that I think about when I walk into a room is that every person in this room knows something I don't. And really early on, one of the things that I learned about you and about your siblings, and about the teenagers that come into our home, are that you know a lot of things that I don't. And if I come across as an adult who has it all together and is a know-it-all, well, then I'm going to fail. I'm actually going to prohibit a relationship between me and my kid and me and other teenagers. But if I approach the experience, the interaction as a learner, who wants to have these conversations and grow together, well, then I think that a lot more beautiful things are going to come from that interaction. And so the, like, the takeaway is that we're learners. 
all the time. And we as adults, like me as an adult, I need to make sure that I am fostering that environment where the teenager can know that that I have, I do have high expectations, but that the standards or whatever there is that they can reach and that they can have that level of autonomy, you know, when it's appropriate and when it's boundaried and and all of those different things. And that's going to be so important for their success. And that in providing that type of culture and in giving them that autonomy and helping them practice, then they're going to develop those really important skills to help them be an adult, a very productive and contributing adult to our our communities and that's like that's really what I want yeah it's great yeah so thank you so much for joining me today I really appreciate you starting the new year with me on the podcast and that again in our school communities teenagers are such important players in this whole picture and like I just would invite all adults to really learn from their teenagers and to really work to problem solve with them and include include them in the process. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. So happy new year, Carter. Yeah, happy new year. And best of luck as you go on to this, you know, your next semester. And I'm really excited to see all the things that you do. Thank you very much. Yeah. And that's a wrap on today's episode of Our Kids, Our Schools. Your contributions are vital in this shared journey towards a thriving school community. So let's keep this conversation going on my Instagram page at the.alexis.morgan. Share your insights, suggestions, and experiences. Follow the podcast so you never miss empowering discussions and insightful resources. And always remember, keep learning, keep questioning, and together, let's make a difference.